Here's, here's, when I first went through, there's so much in this chapter. Actually, the first time that I did sort of a rehearsal of it, it was like an hour. I said, that's not going to work. So I whittled it down and really prayed about what exactly does God want us to hear, uh, what part of it. So I, I know there are sections in Romans chapter 11 that we're just not going to touch on in great depth. Uh, and I kind of had to go where I think my gifts lie, which is to really pull out what I think is the main idea and take us deep on that main idea so that you can work that into sort of your whole percep- perception of who God is and what God is doing. Um, here's, here's, if you've been, actually if you're totally lost this morning, maybe you can go back. I know I think they're posted on the podcast uh, on Crossing's website, so you could listen to the past two sermons that tie in with these sections 9, 10, and 11. Uh, but I said they really go back to Romans chapter 3, where Paul asked this question, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? In other words, what was the point of the law? If that didn't save you and the sacrifices didn't save you and circumcision, he says, what value was any of that in there? Uh, and the answer to that question is on the website. So go there. Um, and then he asked this question. He says, what if some of them didn't have faith? And he's thinking of Israel as a nation. What if, and he's, it's a rhetorical question because he knows for the ma- most part the Jews have not accepted the gospel or have accepted Christ. What if some of them didn't have faith? Does their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And so he's beginning this question to look at what about the whole nation of Israel? Is, is that it? Is their, their time is done? Um, and that's where chapter 11 comes in. So if you join me in chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? By the way, if you're, if you're unfamiliar, it's a great read. 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, the plot of it would work well for if there's a God is not dead 3 movie. And, and what's happening is you have all the prophets of Baal saying to Elijah, our God is real, your God's false. And Elijah, the prophet of God, is saying, I beg to differ. And so they have this contest. And I won't give you the details, go read it. In the end, God shows up, does this great miraculous uh, event, Baal doesn't show up, perhaps because he's just an idol of stone. And, and in the end, God prevails. He's victorious. And in the very end, they're still out to kill Elijah. And so he's, he's kind of moping and he's complaining to God, they're still out to kill me. And so that's where he's talking about here. How he appealed to God against Israel, verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And he's tying back to what we looked at last week, this whole doctrine of election. Uh, And the question, you know, what advantage was there being a Jew? Has God been unfaithful? And the first week we looked at, God hasn't been unfaithful because the gospel hasn't changed. The gospel at the heart is that there's a righteousness from God credited to men through our faith because we would never be righteous on our own. God's not looking 
for a kingdom full of people who are boasting and saying, I got here, I don't know why you didn't. And so none of that matters. God says it's going to be by faith. And secondly, it's by my election. I have chosen you for salvation from before the beginning of time. And so I've always reserved for myself what Paul calls here a remnant. And so I'm still working in Israel. I haven't abandoned them. I haven't been unfaithful to them. I'm still doing the same work that I've done since the beginning of time. I'm looking for faith. And there are people that I choose for salvation. And so there's still a remnant. That's his argument here. He's not done rejecting his people. Verse 7. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Here's an interesting juxtaposition again. The first quote from the Old Testament that Paul used really looks at God's sovereignty. It was God's doing that their ears were closed, their eyes couldn't see. The second one that he pulls really looks at man's responsibility. It was their choice to sort of put their dependence upon their table, a a symbol of material things. That's what they were valuing over God, and so their eyes became blinded to spiritual things. And here's the heart of what I really want to get to this morning, verse 11. Now, let me, before we read that one. Debating. All right. Quickly. There's a, a theology that's called covenant theology. Some of you are like, I think I've heard of that. And some of you are thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I thought I'd introduce it to you. Covenant theology also has another name called replacement theology. And the argument is, and the idea is, that God was working with Israel as a nation. To them and through them, he was blessing them and the world. And uh, he gave them his covenants and his promises. And then Christ came. He fulfilled the law. Uh, No longer did we need the sacrifices because Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And he opened up a way for the Gentiles to really understand the gospel and to join Israel. And that that will continue on, which is now the church, Jew and Gentile together, and that will continue on all the way to the end when God will establish a new kingdom and a new earth. And so we now, the church, are the recipients of all the covenants and promises of the Old Testament. We basically are Israel. That's the idea, which is why it's sometimes called covenant theology. All the covenants of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the church today. Or why it's called replacement theology, that we have replaced the church. We are now the Israel of God, and it will continue on that way. Uh, On the other side of that is a theology that's called dispensational theology, which says God worked with Israel as a nation at one time, gave them the promises and the covenants. But now there's a sort of a parenthesis and a pause in that program where he's working entirely with the church made up of Jew and Gentile. But he's going to, in the future, work again with Israel as a nation. And it's there that all the covenants and the promises will be fulfilled. Now, I I don't want to get into this, like, smashing of one ideology or theology against the next. And and actually, I didn't realize until I was just kind of restudying it, the hostility between the two. Which is, which is kind of a, a sad irony when you read 11 verse 25 
And part of what Paul says there is, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, this relationship between Israel and the church, so that you may not be conceited. And yet there's a lot of arrogance out there on either side saying, your side is stupid, your side is dangerous. Um, Rather than really humbling ourselves and saying, there's a lot of stuff maybe we don't get, I am actually not even trying to persuade you on one or the other. They could take you to other passages, and they would, like, prove me wrong. But fortunately, all I'm dealing with is Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, it is the question that Paul's addressing. Is God done with Israel as a nation? Is that it? And I think Paul is pretty clear. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Did God reject his people? By no means. Verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble? Did they, the nation of Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. He's he's going to work with Israel as a nation again. Look, it's implied in that verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. It's going to reverse. He's going to work with Israel as a nation again. That's where the promises, that's where all the covenants in their fullness will find their, their fullness. And then we see it implied in these next verses that we'll read. Let's go back to verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? you see it? Right now, Israel as a nation, they're hardened, they're blinded, they're rejected, they're in transgression, they've experienced loss, but the time's going to come when they are once again accepted, and in that day, the party begins. Things get even better and more glorious, and the riches are going to flow to Jew and Gentile alike. And that's really what he wants them to be excited about, and what I want to give you sort of a deeper understanding of. Because you can look and go, that seems odd that God would reject his people as a whole for the sake of the Gentiles and pulling them in. Let me give you, give you sort of a big picture scenario to kind of plug that into. So if you will, turn back with me to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. <clears throat> And this is actually the chapter where God comes to Abraham and, and reminds him and reiterates his promise to him, you're going to have a son. And Abraham believes, and God credits that to him as righteousness. And then later on, verse 12, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, 
Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So you see this parallel idea. The sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. In Romans 11, he talked about the fullness of the Gentiles. And, and God works with numbers. I don't know how he does that. But there is, there is a number in his mind in which he says, that person's the one. The fullness of the church is complete. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of spooky, actually. That there could be someone sharing Christ and the gospel with someone right now and who receives Christ and it puts God's plan into motion for the end times. It's the opposite. I've often wondered about, you know, there was the time when they couldn't go into the land of promise until the last of the generation died away. So at one point there was like a guy <laughs> who was the last one. And was all Israel just kind of looking at him going, you're the one keeping us from going in. Anyway, this, would be, this is like the opposite. They're, they're, God works with numbers. And, and we don't know how that works, but, but he's looking. Now, here's, here's what's happening. Here's the bigger picture scenario. Here's the Amorites. The land of Canaan is, is a wicked, depraved place. Culturally, it was acceptable and common that they would sacrifice their babies on the altars in fires to appease their gods for protection, for prosperity. That was the norm. Uh, if you want to know the wickedness of the land of Canaan in that time, you don't even need to go any further than to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And if you know the story, these visitors come to Sodom and Lot, actually Lot goes to them and says, hey, why don't you come to my house tonight? And they start off going, we're fine, we'll just stay here in the square. And he says, no, I really, really recommend you don't do that. And so he takes them in and it says, that night, the men of the city, old and young, Fathers and sons come to the door and bang on the door and say, let those men out to us so that we can have sex with them. And Lot's response is, I can't do that. They're my guests, but I have two daughters who are virgins. I'll send them out and you can do whatever you want with them. That was the wickedness of Sodom and of the land of Canaan. And God is looking on that wickedness and hitting where he says, I'm not going to be patient forever. And so he calls Abraham from over here from Ur. And he says to Abraham, I'm bringing you into the land of Canaan. And he brings him into this wicked, depraved place and says, I'm going to give you this land, you and your descendants. It's going to be yours. But look, he says right here. However, I want you to know there's a couple other things in place. And what I'm trying to show you is this working of God that just kind of interweaves where you see God's sovereignty and you see the free will of man and the wickedness of man. But never is it outside of God's control. I see it, I'm going to work it out, and we get that whole Romans 8. And all things are going to work together for good. It goes back to what we looked at last week. What's, what's God's ultimate purpose in all of human history, which includes the good, the bad, the blessings, the suffering. Actually, say it to me. What's God's purpose? His glory, to the praise of his glory. You 
will all bow before me and recognize me as Lord, and you will know my glory. You will know my power. You will know my faithfulness. You will know my wrath. You will know my justice. You'll know my compassion. You'll know that I'm loving. You'll know that I'm wise. You'll know that I'm perfect. You'll know that I'm holy. Everything that I am, I weave in through the history of mankind. And so right now, he says, and you see it in the land of Canaan, wickedness. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to use the descendants of Abraham. When I bring you into the land, you're going to be my instrument to wipe them out. This wicked, depraved culture. But not yet. I'm giving them 400 years more. I'm going to be patient. By the way, we even know that there is, there is a testimony of God in the Lamb. There's a guy named Melchizedek, who's priest of the Most High God. Now, it's possible that he's the only believer in the whole land and declares himself high priest, since I'm the only one. But it's more likely there's a lot. There's a system even there going all the way back from Adam and Eve, all the way back to Noah, where people know who God is, the one true God, and they are worshiping him, and there's a testimony in the land. And so God is patient. Would God have relented if the culture of Canaan would have said, we're done, we're sorry, God. We relent, we're going to start following you. Yeah. It would have been like Nineveh. He would have relented. They don't. And so he says, I'm going to be patient for 400 years, but when they come in, by the way, this is, Sometimes uh, you're, you're especially anti-Christian will bring this up as genocide. God is a, is a genocidal maniac. He brought, he brought his people and he wiped out the Canaanites. No, God is a just God who deals with wickedness. And in this case, that's what it was. And guess what? He did the same thing to Israel. When Israel became wicked and evil and lost sight of God, he would raise up actually a whole Gentile nation, Babylon, and bring them in and do the same thing to Israel. I'm not going to contend with evil forever, and I am not, I don't show favoritism, right? That's actually the God that we're worshiping and that we see. Now, what about, what about this? Doesn't this strike you as odd? For 400 years, he's saying to Abraham, your, your descendants will be enslaved in a foreign country. And you go, well, why, was that really necessary? Like, why do you have to, like, add suffering into that kind of a thing? And, and it is. It's an amazing, again, it's God interweaving to say it's going to be to my glory. Because, actually, here's another parallel. Here's Joseph, who's gloating to his brothers and saying, God loves me, and you're all gone. I'm going to rule over you someday. And they get jealous, so they sell him into slavery to Egypt. And then God blesses Joseph, and he becomes the most powerful man under Pharaoh in Egypt. And then God brings natural disaster to the whole area. There's a famine. And so Joseph's family is forced to come into Egypt where they reconnect with Joseph and they're taken care of and they're provided for and they're actually blessed and they become prosperous and they start to grow. But then a new Pharaoh comes in who enslaves them. And now for 400 years, and why is God doing that? Because he's saying, but wait till I bring them out. That's what we read in chapter 9. So I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart because my glory is going to be praised. They're not going to come out quietly. All the nations surrounding you will know my name when I bring them out. And what does he do in that, in that whole Exodus experience? He creates a feast called Passover. 
right, where the firstborn was rescued by the blood of the lamb placed over the doorpost. And now we look back on that and we go, that's glorious, that's brilliant, what God was doing. Of course, we, we take for granted that it required a famine and people's suffering. But that's what God's doing. He works those things together for good. I'm in control. And you're doing your free will, and I see that, but I'm also sovereign. And in the end, I will be glorified, and you will see everything about me, and you'll look back and go, that's marvelous. That's so cool how you wove those things together. Well, that's what Paul is kind of talking about here in Romans 11. Go back to Romans 11. Right now, there's a hardening of Israel so that the Gentiles could pour in with an understanding of the gospel. But there will be a point where the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, where I'm going to work again with the nation of Israel. Now, what will that look like? Well, here's verse 26. He says, All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is that going to look like? Well, there's, there's lots of possibilities. And again, I don't think it's worth being hostile over one view over another. My gut feeling is we're probably all wrong in some way in terms of future things. There's so much God hasn't revealed to us. But one, one possible, excuse me, one possibility, I need to grab my water, I think. Give me one minute. Before I die. Wow, we we flew through that. Does any of that make sense? I hope you're not like. Here's here's one possibility. Um, We know that there's there's this tribulation age, seven years again, where God is going to bring suffering and hardship upon the world, and during this tribulation age, we read in Revelation seven that God seals 144,000 Jews. It's very clear, 12,000 from every tribe. He's back working with Israel as a nation again. And these 144,000 are proclaiming the gospel. They know the testimony of Christ. They're witnessing for Christ in the land. There's also two other witnesses that we meet up in uh, Revelation who are doing the same thing. Proclaiming the gospel, performing miracles. And so God is making his name known, especially among the Jews and the nation of Israel. But I love, we go back with me, can you find Zechariah chapter 12? This prophecy in Zechariah 12. I'll give you a minute because it's hard to find. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God says through the prophet, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. There's a phrase that at the time didn't mean a whole lot, but carries great significance now, doesn't it? Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, they pierced his side to ensure that he was dead. So now we look back on that and we go, oh, we know who this is talking about. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Again, a phrase that didn't have full meaning then, but has even more meaning to us when we read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. All of that tying back to this. As one grieves for a firstborn son. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. What, what is this time period that he's talking about? This is the second coming of Christ. And, and he says, the whole nation of Israel will be gathered and they will see Christ and they will know exactly who he is. I don't know if they'll be able to see the fact that he had been pierced. Will they see his hands? Will they see his feet and realize that was our Messiah? And they will weep bitterly over it. But they'll have an understanding and their hearts are softened and their eyes will be opened. And in that way, all Israel is saved. By the way, it's, a, it's an interesting verse. It goes back to something we talked about last week. I teach English. And my red pen would be all over this. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And I'd say, you've got your, you've got your pronouns mixed up, buddy. Uh, you can't be both me and him at the same time. That's not making sense. And then Sazer would say, well, maybe there's two people. We don't know what it means, but maybe there's two people. But now we look back on it, and with an understanding of the Trinity and the Incarnation and that God became man, we read this totally impossible construction. You can't be two people at once. And we go, oh yeah, he can. God can do that. God can make a boulder so big that he can't lift it, and then he'll lift it. And you go, that's not logical. No, he could do it in his infinite wisdom he would make it happen. So he'd be like, oh, I didn't see it. I, you're right, you did it. That's, that's this. They'll look on me, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him. Both of them are possible in this. It's incredible. And so, again, what's, what's the purpose? What is it that God's doing? Let me, I really did fly through that way quicker than I thought I was going to. Um, I want to invite the worship team, actually, to come on back up as we close out here. Uh, they're going to come up. We're gonna, I'm, I'm going to read one more verse. We're going to sing uh, a song together, and then I'll close this out and come back up. But here's, here's the idea that he's saying in Romans chapter 11. And let's just look back at that again, if you're not there. Romans eleven twelve. If their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And I think he's talking there about Israel's spiritual life from the dead. Their eyes are open and they give glory and they give praise. And we're going to look back one day on all of this history stuff and go, why would he reject his people for a period of time? And what does that mean for the church and for the Gentiles? And we can apply it it's cool because God's in control of all that world history stuff and all of the nations and everything that's happening in the world today is not outside God's control. 
And the same is true of your families and the same is true of your life. That God weaves together and he brought you and your spouse together and says, they're going to be perfect together. His strengths, her weaknesses, his weaknesses, his strengths, they're going to sharpen each other. And it's just like, wow, that was a perfect blending of everything. And in the end, we bow before him in glory. And so I want to take you, last verse here, Revelation. You go with me, Revelation 19. And if you're thinking, they must have spent weeks planning this. We did not. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Why don't we stand together, we're going to sing together, and then I'll come up and close this out.